All right. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, get to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Um, Sam Storms joined us on Friday night as we had this Holy Spirit conference this weekend, which if you weren't able to be here or if you missed one of the sessions, I would really strongly encourage you to go back uh, to our YouTube page, or our Facebook page, and watch those. He did an excellent job. Uh, Friday night, he talked about his own journey of, of coming into the gifts of the Spirit, uh, shared a lot of just really special stories and just talk through what that looked like in his own life. And then uh, yesterday we had a great time with him. Our life group leaders, our ministry leaders got to ask lots of questions and, and interact with him. And that was also super helpful. And then last night he spoke on the topic of prophecy and it was excellent. He just biblically walked through the, the various arguments and the, the do's and don'ts of prophecy. And again, it was very helpful. And then we ended with an opportunity to pray for healing for each other. And we're excited to hear the various stories that will come out of that time. Uh, but this morning, we asked Sam to close out our series on welcoming the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I, I don't know about the other pastors who taught in this series, but I know at least for me, I found Sam's books. He's written over 25 books on a lot of different topics. Um, in this series, I think I probably quoted him uh, the most uh, with maybe Wimber and Wayne Grudem right under that. And so it feels only fitting to have him close us out in this series. So thank you, Sam, for coming. Uh, we honor you. Uh, we feel so blessed that you joined us. Oh, thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. Very kind. Not altogether true, but very kind anyway. <laughs> it's good to be with you all. It's been a great weekend. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. It's my first time in Columbus. Uh, it's not my first time in Ohio. I've been to Cincinnati a couple of times, but it's my first time here, and it's been a real blessing to be with you all. So without any further delay, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to open them to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now, I'm going to be referencing numerous texts of Scripture this morning. Um, I suspect that it would be virtually impossible for you to keep up, so you can just listen closely as I cite these many passages. But we want to begin by looking at Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Cornelius visiting Peter and Peter sharing the gospel with him and those who were with him. And I just want to read very briefly, beginning in uh, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. <clears throat> you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. May the Lord richly bless our time in his word today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are only here and able to listen and to be instructed and encouraged and find uh, power to persevere in the Christian life because of all that you have done for us through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge that and we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would enable us today 
to gain a new, fresh perspective on what you have designed for us to accomplish in the power of the Spirit, the very same Spirit who empowered Jesus. So, Lord, I want to pray Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist said, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, that is our prayer today, and we trust in the power of the Spirit to bring enlightenment and insight and understanding. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you and I are ever to understand and experience the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we must first understand the experience of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit in his life. Now let me say that again because that, that usually strikes most Christians as a rather odd statement because they've never really given much thought to the relationship of Jesus to the Spirit of God. But if we are ever going to understand and experience the Spirit of God in us, we first must understand the experience of the Spirit in Jesus. Now again, that is something that, as I said, most Bible-believing evangelical Christians struggle with. They've never heard that because their focus has almost always been on the deity, the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the idea that Jesus was a human being who depended in his life and ministry on the power of the Spirit is not something that we have typically given much thought to. Let me illustrate this from a an experience I had that awakened me to this reality. It's many, many years ago, I was pastoring in a small church in the southern part of Oklahoma, and a young man who was in our church came to visit me one day, and he poured his heart out about a particular sin in his life that he'd been struggling with, and he asked me for counsel. How can I find power to live in holiness? And I said, well, Let's turn to either Matthew or Luke's gospel and let's look at how Jesus resisted the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. And before I could say another word, he stopped me, put up his hand, he said, no. What good is it for me to look at the example of Jesus? He was God and I'm not. He had all the power of his divine nature to bring to bear against Satan's alluring, seductive temptations. I'm just a human being. What good is that to me? I have to confess, I didn't know how to answer the man at that time. I felt rather helpless. And it was about then that I came across a book written by a man named Gerald Hawthorne. Gerald Hawthorne was for many, many years professor of New Testament at Wheaton College where I was able to teach for four years. And he wrote a book called The Presence and the Power subtitled The Role of the Holy Spirit in the Life and Ministry of Jesus. And I devoured this book because it opened my eyes to something that I had never seen before. I had been in ministry for about 15 years before I ever read that book. And I must confess to my everlasting shame, I had never thought about the relationship of Jesus to the Holy Spirit. Now there's a reason for that. It's because most evangelical Bible-believing Christians focus more on the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ than on His human nature. And we did that because for about a hundred years or so, theological liberalism had denied the deity of Christ. And they said, no, he was only a, a human being, no more, no less. And they pretty much rejected any concept 
that Jesus was also fully God. Now, of course, we believe, as the confessions and the creeds have said down through history, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, 100% both in one person. But there was something lost in the shuffle, so to speak, of our defense of the deity of Christ, and that is we lost sight of the fact that Jesus was a human being. He was a man with a nature like ours, with a body very similar to the ones that we have. And in losing sight of the humanity of our Lord, we lost sight of the fact that in my opinion, as I began to read scripture again, he depended moment by moment throughout his life and ministry on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I discovered, largely through reading Hawthorne's book and then turning to the text of scripture, that it wasn't primarily by virtue of his divine nature that Jesus ministered and taught and cleansed lepers and drove out demons and healed the sick and raised the dead, but rather through his constant, ever-increasing reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, pause right there. Before you denounce me as a heretic, let me make it very clear. I do believe Jesus was God, is now, always has been. But what I began to discover is that it wasn't primarily out of the strength of his divine nature as God that he carried out the ministry that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but rather as a human being who depended moment by moment on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now let me draw your attention to a very famous passage of Scripture to make this point. Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, describes what we call the incarnation of Christ. That is, when the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, took to himself a human nature and lived his life upon this earth and died on a cross. Listen to what Paul says. We are told that he, and depending on which translation you use, he emptied himself. Some translations rendered, he made himself of no reputation, or he became nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, and was found in human form. Now, many have read this passage in a very wrong and damaging way. They have read it as if Paul is saying that God the Son divested himself of his divine nature, that in a sense he committed divine suicide. He ceased to be God so that he could become human. But that's not what the text is saying. Listen to a more literal rendering of this passage. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and by being found in human form. Now there's a paradox here. I think what Paul is saying is that God the Son came to this earth not by losing his deity, but by gaining humanity. His self-emptying, his self-renunciation in the incarnation was manifest precisely in his taking to himself a human nature and living as a human being on this earth. And so when you and I turn to the Gospels, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we, we see this man named Jesus doing superhuman things, and we ask, how did he pull that off? And the answer is not by virtue of his divine nature, but rather by virtue of his dependence as a man on the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus came to this earth and experienced life very much in the same way that you and I do. Time, space, history. He interacted with others. He viewed the world, 
strictly within the confines of a normally developing human person. And so we look at the remarkable supernatural deeds that he performed, and we say, how did he do that? And the answer is not by virtue of his divine nature, although he was fully divine. But he temporarily suspended the exercise of those divine attributes so that he could live a fully human life depending upon the power of the Spirit. Now, in order to demonstrate this to you, I want to walk you rather quickly through the life and the ministry of Jesus, starting all the way back with his conception in the womb of Mary to the time of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, I want you to understand that what we are seeing is that Jesus is, in fact, our model for ministry. He is, in fact, the pattern of life that is set forth to tell us how we are to live in the strength of the Holy Spirit. The place to begin, obviously, is with the descriptions of how God the Father bestowed upon Jesus the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verses 34 and 35. There we read that he whom God has sent, God there being the Father, he being Jesus, he whom God has sent, speaks the words of God because the Father gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, did you hear what John is saying? God the Father who sent God the Son in the person of Jesus has poured out on Jesus the Spirit without measure limitlessly as it were so if jesus spoke the words of god as that text says we ask how did he always know how to speak the very words and the, express the very heart of the father it's through the holy spirit whom the father had poured out on him without measure so we start out with the conception of jesus in the womb of mary several texts matthew chapter 1 says that when mary was pregnant from the holy spirit and then, of course, you remember that incredible story in Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel declared to her that she will conceive and give birth to the Messiah. And you remember how she responded in unbelief, said, I'm a virgin. How am I going to conceive and bear a child? And Gabriel told her, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That verb, come upon you. That's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the powerful presence of the Spirit of God in prophets and kings and priests and military commanders and the artisans of the temple. And when it says the power of the Most High will overshadow you, he uses a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the revelation of God's glory on the, in the Holy of Holies. And so he seems to be saying that just as the tabernacle of the Old Testament was full and contained the Shekinah glory of God, so Mary is now going to carry within herself the Son of God, the glory of God's people. And then another interesting passage in John chapter 1, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 1, you remember when Zechariah, who was to be the father of John the Baptist, was told by the angel what God was going to do. And he said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, think about that for a moment. Here is John, the forerunner of the Messiah, who is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. If that was true of John, how much more must it have been true of Jesus? 
Now let's move a little farther along into the teenage years of our Lord. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, Sam. I didn't think the Bible said anything about the teenage years of Jesus. Well, actually it does contain a couple of statements. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says that the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now again, let me more literally render what Luke is saying. He's saying that the child grew and became strong by being progressively and ever increasingly filled with wisdom. And I think the wisdom with which he is filled is the wisdom provided by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in all likelihood, Luke is alluding back to Isaiah chapter 11, that messianic prophecy that says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is upon the Messiah. And listen to how the Spirit is described. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And I think Luke is telling us that as Jesus was growing up through those teen years, he was progressively being filled with the wisdom supplied by the Holy Spirit. And then it also says that the favor of God was upon him. I don't really like that translation because the word favor in the original text is the word for grace. Now when you and I hear the word grace, we think of the unmerited favor of God that saved us who are sinners. But of course Jesus was not a sinner. But interestingly, not only in Luke but in Paul's writings, grace is oftentimes a reference to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So when Luke says the grace of the Lord was upon him, he's really telling us that God the Father was fitting out or equipping Jesus for the ministry that he was to carry out through the presence of the Spirit. Now you may remember a little bit further in Luke chapter 2, it says that when Jesus was in the temple, remember the story how I think he's 12 years old and his parents can't find him in Jerusalem. And he's find out that he's actually in the temple uh, inter interacting with and engaging in theological dispute with the religious leaders. And they were stunned and amazed by how precocious he was. And we asked the question, how did that come about? It came about because of the spirit of wisdom and understanding with which he was being progressively filled. Well, let's move on now to the baptism of Jesus. You know the story how he came into the River Jordan, John the Baptist was there. And it's interesting how the gospel writers describe this. In John 1, 32, it says that the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove and remained upon him. And he emphasizes that word remained on him because in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people but wouldn't remain. The Spirit would come upon a king to empower him to carry out his duties. The Spirit would be poured out upon a prophet so he could prophesy. The Spirit would be poured out on military commanders. But the Spirit didn't remain on them. The permanent indwelling presence of the Spirit didn't happen until the New Testament. But here we're told that when the Spirit came on Jesus, the Spirit remained on him permanently. It's interesting, in Mark's Gospel, he uses a different word. He says the Spirit not only came upon Jesus, but came into Jesus, emphasizing the internal abiding presence of the Spirit of God. And we saw when we, when we just read Acts 10, that Peter says it was this event in the River Jordan when the Spirit descended upon Jesus and entered into him that constituted his anointing with power 
by which he carried out all the things that we read about in the Gospels. So again, looking at that passage in Acts that we read a moment ago, a couple of things I want to highlight. Do you notice how Peter describes Jesus? He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's not a common way of referring to Jesus. I think Peter did that because he wants to emphasize that Jesus had a hometown, just like you do. He lived and walked and breathed the same air and ate the same food as other human beings in that particular community. And then secondly, we see that he performed his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit with whom he had been anointed. Now let me just ask you a question. If Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, drove out demons, taught with authority in the power of his divine nature, why would he need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power? How utterly superfluous. How utterly unnecessary. And yet that is precisely what Peter says. And notice also at the end of that, of verse 38, that says, and he did this because God was with him. Now that's not Peter's way of saying Jesus wasn't God, but God simply accompanied him. The God who was with him is God the Holy Spirit with whom he had been anointed and empowered. And notice also, listen to, to what Peter says. It says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So the good that Jesus did extends far beyond the miraculous. It means his compassion, his love for the hurting, his forgiving of sins, his feeding the, the, the hungry, his dealing with the poor and the needy. And all of this, Peter's telling us, he did by virtue of the Holy Spirit with whom he had been anointed and empowered. Now, let me take you up to the passage of Scripture that I brought up to this young man who sat in my office that day, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The most graphic portrayal of this is found in Luke's Gospel. When we put Matthew and Luke together, we see that it was immediately after his baptism in the River Jordan that Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Listen to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Mark is even more explicit. Mark says he was thrust forth into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know how the Spirit communicated that to Jesus, but we know that Jesus yielded to the guidance and the leading of the Spirit. He went into the wilderness. And while he was there, he was being led by the Spirit. Now again, did you hear the opening statement of Luke 4.1? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the interesting thing. You know, of course, that Luke wrote the gospel that bears his name. He also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 6, we read about uh, those who were selected to be the first deacons in the church. And one of the qualifications that they had to display was each had to be full of the Holy Spirit. And it's the precisely same Greek phrase in Acts 6 as we find in Luke 4. Luke knew what he was doing. He was a literary master. He's basically telling us that we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus did, that equipped him for his ministry. And so here we are being told that while Jesus was in the wilderness being confronted and tempted by Satan, the power by which he said no, 
The wisdom that he had to cite those Old Testament texts to refute Satan's claims was by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, after Jesus resisted the temptation of Satan, he returned to Nazareth. Listen to how the Gospel of Luke describes this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In other words, he was still full of the Spirit. He made his journey back by virtue of the indwelling empowerment of the Spirit. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, I, I read that and I say, what was it about the teaching of Jesus that led people to glorify him and extol him and just honor and praise him? It was because he taught through the power of the indwelling Spirit. And you know what happens next. He goes to Nazareth. He enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And he took the scroll and he opened very specifically to one passage in the prophecy of Isaiah. And he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So just stop and think for a moment. Here's Jesus saying as in as explicit terms as he can, I proclaim good news to the poor because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. He's empowered me to do so. I bring liberty to the captives. I heal those who are blind. How did he do this? Well, he himself tells us it's by virtue of the Spirit with whom I've been anointed and who dwells within me. It's simply remarkable when you stop and think about the way in which Jesus carried out his ministry. We have so oftentimes just said it's by virtue of uh, his divine nature when in fact the text of the New Testament says no. Although divine, those attributes were, were somewhat latent and potential in him. They weren't active because he rather depended upon the Spirit who indwelt him. Let me give you another example. I think most of you know this story well. In Matthew chapter 12, how um, a, a man was brought to him who was blind, he was mute, he couldn't speak, and he was demonized. And of course, Jesus immediately heals the man and casts out the demon. You remember how the uh, religious leaders uh, reacted. They basically said, you did this by the power of Satan. Listen to how Jesus describes what he did. He said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? The evidence that the kingdom of God has broken into history isn't so much that I am here, but that I am here in the power of the Holy Spirit by whom I exercise authority over the demonic. And interestingly enough, when the, when the religious leaders say, no, the only way you did this is by the power of Satan, Remember what Jesus said about that? He said, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus had cast out the demon and healed that man by virtue of his own divine nature, why didn't he call that sin blasphemy of the Son? He called it blasphemy of the Spirit because he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's so many texts like this all through the Gospels. Take, for example, Luke 5, 17. Again, it said on one particular day, Jesus was teaching, uh, and it says, the power of the Lord was present with him to heal. 
wait a minute. If he could heal by virtue of his own divine nature, why did he need the power of the Lord to be present with him? And power in Luke's gospel is almost always synonymous with the Holy Spirit. Or take, for example, one of the most amazing passages I find in the gospels. In Luke chapter 6, we read this in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him because power came out of him and healed them all. Again, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that that sounds really weird. You know, we live in the 21st century and we're a highly technological, sophisticated, computerized world. And the idea that spiritual power, the very presence of the Spirit of God that indwelt Jesus could go out of him and into somebody else to heal them sounds really strange. It almost sounds magical. It's not magical. That's simply God's way of ministering through his son to those who are in need. Let me give you another example. You all know the story about the woman who had the issue of blood. She'd spent all of her money with doctors who couldn't heal her. And we're told that as Jesus was walking along and crowds were pressing in on him, that she said to herself, if only I touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And evidently she kind of somehow sneaked her way through the crowd and came up behind Jesus and took hold of the hem of his garment. Listen to how Jesus himself responded. Who was it that touched me? Everybody denied it. And then Peter, typical Peter, said, what do you mean who touched you? For heaven's sake, Jesus, everybody touched you. They're all pressing in and grabbing on you. And Jesus basically said, no, no, no. I know touches. And I just felt an unusual touch that was obviously motivated by faith. And I felt power go out of me. Listen to how he said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And of course the woman immediately knows that she's healed. She's been exposed. She comes forward and says, I'm the guilty one. I did it. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So here we have all through the gospels, these references to people touching Jesus power, the Holy Spirit coming out of him into them and healing their bodies. There's another example of this. In Luke chapter 7, verse 21, we read that Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Bestowed. Interesting translation because the Greek word behind that is the word for grace. It literally says he graced them with sight. And as I said a moment ago, grace is used throughout the New Testament not simply for God's unmerited favor, but for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. There's another story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is described worshiping the Father and giving thanks to the Father in the Holy Spirit says he rejoiced in the Spirit. Even the emotional life of our Lord was dominated and energized and sustained by the Spirit of God. Well, let's move on along to the time after the resurrection. Well, before I do that, let me just say a quick word about the cross itself. What role did the Spirit of God have in the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, let me just read one text to you. In Hebrews chapter 9, 
We read this, if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, referring to what happened in the Old Testament, and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So you look at the life and ministry of Jesus and you think, Man, what, what he must have endured in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony, the anguish, the temptations of the enemy just to quit and give up and run away, his, his ability, his courage to endure the, the torture that he suffered from the Roman soldiers, the willingness to allow himself to be nailed naked to a cross with nails through his hands and his feet. How did he pull that off? The author of Hebrews says it was through, by means of, the Holy Spirit who indwelt him. Well, after the resurrection of Jesus, he is with his disciples, as you know, before his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And there's an amazing statement by Luke again in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, listen to this. After he had given commands to the apostles, through the Holy Spirit. The teaching ministry of Jesus, the authority of his voice, the way he confuted the religious leaders, and his instruction of the disciples was all done, not because he had a great education, not because he'd gone to seminary, not because of any reason other than the fact that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you may be sitting there asking yourself a question. Sam, I've put up with you talking about the life and ministry of Jesus. I've, I've heard what you said about the indwelling power of the Spirit in Him. What does that have to do with me today in 2023? How does this apply to my life? How can I draw any value from this? I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> On the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, Fascinating account in John chapter 20. The disciples in fear are locked in behind closed doors and Jesus suddenly appears in their presence. You know the very first thing that Jesus does? We read this in John 20. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, pause right there. How did the Father send Jesus? We read in John chapter three, he gave him the Holy Spirit without measure. He empowered him. He anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so likewise am I now sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples are just average followers of Jesus, just like you and me. And Jesus is saying to them, and by extension to us as well, listen, folks, my ministry on this earth hasn't come to an end. My physical presence, that's about the end. I'm going to the Father. But my ministry that the Father sent me to accomplish is going to continue through you so that you can do that. Let me now impart to you the very same Holy Spirit that the Father gave to me when I was baptized by John in the River Jordan. Is that beginning to register with you? We're talking about the same Holy Spirit, not second grade, second class, minor league Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. 
the very spirit that indwelt and empowered Jesus, Jesus now imparts to his disciples. And of course, the fullness of that impartation came many days later on the day of Pentecost when the spirit was poured out in his fullness. Now, let me just tie these ends together with a few more comments. As I've already said, all through Luke's writings, the word power is interchangeable and synonymous with the Holy Spirit. That's why in Luke 24, 49, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples and he says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's saying until you are adorned with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you think about that kind of language. It's an incredibly rich metaphor. I mean, when all of you got up today, some of you probably never gave it a second thought. Others of you were very careful about what you put on. You thought, I'm going to wear this shirt or that blouse or these shoes or those slacks. I'm going to go casual or I'm going to go formal. And you make that decision every single day. Well, God wants us to understand that every moment of every day we are adorned and clothed with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, in Acts 1-8, Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. Now, let me remind you once again of what we saw in Luke chapter 4. There Jesus reads from the prophecy of Isaiah. He says, the Spirit is upon me. The Spirit has anointed me to do all of these glorious and wonderful things. Do you realize, folks, that if you know Jesus Christ right at this very moment, every single one of you is anointed in the same way Jesus was with the very same Holy Spirit? Let me simply read to you very briefly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about this glorious truth. If I can find it. He says this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now listen. And it is God, referring to the Father, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. God the Father has imparted to you through faith and thus anointed you with the very same Holy Spirit with which he anointed Jesus, his son, in virtue of which he went about doing all the things that we read about in the Gospels. And if that isn't enough for you, 1 John chapter 2, John's telling the, the, the uh, Christians in that particular city, in that particular church, that you don't have to be afraid of the false teachers. Here's why. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. You don't have to buy into their false doctrine. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus was. Now, let me point out one more thing before I wrap this up. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a text that all Christians know. Jesus made the promise, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you'll receive power, you'll be my witnesses. And most of us throughout our lives have, have understood that to mean that the primary point that Jesus is making is that the Spirit is given to us so that we can be bold witnesses and evangelize and, and testify to unbelievers of the gospel of Christ. And of course that's true, but I don't think that's the primary point that Luke had in mind when he recorded those words. Here's why. 
The word power that we find there in Acts 1-8 is used 25 times in Luke's writings, in the Gospel and in the book of Acts, 25 times. 20 of those 25 times, it describes what God does through human beings by the power of the Spirit to perform signs and wonders and miracles. 10 of those 20 refer to what the Father did through Jesus. The other 10 describe what God the Father does through average followers of Jesus. Nine of those 10, it always talks about signs and wonders, healing the sick, driving out demons, miracles. Do you know where the 10th and final occurrence of the word power is? Right here in Acts 1.8. My point is simply this. If in the other nine places where the word power appears in Luke's writings, referring to what God does through ordinary human beings, and it refers to signs and wonders and miracles, and the tenth is in Acts 1.8, would we not be justified in concluding that that's what Jesus primarily had in mind? When he says the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and bring you power, it's not simply to declare the gospel to unbelievers, but also to operate in the ministry of healing and setting people free from demonic affliction and cleansing the lepers and all of the many other things that we read about in the Gospels. So, the point of all this is simply to highlight the fact that Jesus Christ in his earthly life and ministry is the supreme example of how the Father wants you and me to live in daily constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit with whom we have been anointed and who now permanently indwells us. Now, if you're wondering what difference did that make in your ministry, Sam, when you first saw that, and how has it affected you up until the present day, and how should it affect us here? Simply this. Let me ask you a question. What is your level of expectancy when you pray for somebody? When somebody who's sick or ill or has a lingering affliction or chronic pain and they ask you to pray for them, to what degree of expectation do you have in your heart that God might actually do something miraculous and powerful in their bodies? I suspect that if you're like most Christians, the answer is yeah, it's, it's really low. It was for me until the time I realized, oh, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit that indwelled and empowered Jesus by which he healed the sick and cleansed the lepers, that same Holy Spirit has now come to reside in me? Folks, my level of expectation massively increased, and I hope and pray yours would as well. Let me ask you another question. When you're confronted with somebody in a very difficult situation, it doesn't have to be a physical illness, but just a challenging circumstance in their life, do you approach ministering to them and speaking to them out of fear or faith? I was terrified of dealing with people who were struggling because I thought the only thing that I have to bring to bear on their life is whatever knowledge I've gained through my education, whatever resolve of my own will, until I realized, no, no, no. I'm bringing to bear in their life through my laying on of hands and through my speaking words of truth the very Holy Spirit who did the very same thing for Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. So do you avoid praying for people out of self-doubt and thinking that all I've got to give you isn't much. It's just what I've learned from going to school and living in this world for these many years. Or do you come recognizing the fact 
that the Spirit of God has now been given to you and operates in and through you so that you can minister in power to those in need. We don't have time to turn to it, but I, I, I could direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul makes one of the most astounding statements that I find in his writings. He says, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit, is now at work and operating in us who believe. If that doesn't elevate your confidence in what God can do through you in ministering to the hurting and the needy and the broken and the sinful, I don't know what can. If that won't raise your level of expectation and give you a new confidence in the things that God can do through you, I don't know that anything else ever will. So let me just close by reminding you of what Jesus said to his disciples about prayer. He said, which of you, if your child comes to you asking for a loaf of bread, is going to give him a stone? Which of you, when your child comes asking for a fish that he might eat, you're going to give him a scorpion? And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, we're asking right now in the name of Jesus. We're praying that the Spirit of God who indwells us, empowers us, and has anointed us would be manifest in even greater ways as we speak truth to one another, as we pray for one another, as we serve one another. Father, may we never be crippled by fear or paralyzed by doubt, thinking that, well, nothing's going to happen because it all depends on me. No, it depends upon the Spirit of God, the very same Spirit who indwelt Jesus now lives in us that we might live in accordance with the pattern that he has set forth in the Gospels. Father, my prayer for the people of Linworth Road Church is that they would awaken each and every day and go to bed each and every night with an awareness of the magnificent privilege that is theirs by virtue of the indwelling spirit. And that they would never look upon the gospel records of the life and ministry of Jesus the same way again. That they would see in him a pattern for how they are to resist temptation, a model for how they are to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. An example of how they are to pray for the sick and minister to those in need. May you forever transform the people of this church and this community with this glorious truth. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.